So this is Mr. Big. That's the man. You ain't saying shit now, Mr. Big. I must admit that I'm slightly at a loss for words, but on the other hand, I should warn you that you are a killer and you are wanted by the police in every state, and I recommend that you uh, be careful. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons, and whack ass inflections from Patrick McCoon, Chris and Glenn made a podcast. It's a degree absolute. Glenn. Chris. Happy 2022, pal. And to you. It is, I think, the fourth consecutive calendar year in which Top Gun Maverick is definitely coming out. Mm, That's true. And some of us are waiting with bated breath. Others of us don't care, but... We'll let you pick who's who on this podcast. Before we introduce Ronald Young Jr., let's uh, get a quick straw poll. Where are you on uh, Top Gun colon Maverick, Ronald? Uh, so I have a, another little podcast called uh, Leaving the Theater, and I've been thinking about doing a part of it where I review movies that I should have seen but never seen, and okay. one of the movies on there would oh be Top God. Gun. So I do wow. not care about That's Maverick okay. at all. <laughs> all right, there we go my people all right ron now having listened to several episodes of leaving the theater that you recorded in your car on the way home uh-huh. i thought you were going to say you were going to record your top gun maverick episode in the the back seat the radar intercept operator seat <laughs> of an f-14 if only because the audio <laughs> would, would probably be fantastic so as as we are recording this we have gentlemen 32 days before harvey dent shall attempt his most daring criminal caper yet uh uh, what do you mean? Because in 32 days, it will be 2-22-22. Oh, sure, oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Well played. If you work well at a mint, if you work at uh, a U.S. mint, your days are numbered. You better better watch out. Aggressive, Glenn, getting getting numbered out there early. I like it. Good job. Six out of six. We are also in 2022. We are getting a new Jordan Peele movie. Mm-hmm. Ooh, can't wait. Reunion. That I'm looking forward to. Nope. With Daniel Kaluuya, uh, plus Kiki Palmer and Steven Yeun, and shot in IMAX by the great Hoyt Van Hoytema, like it's a damn Christopher Nolan movie, coming out in July, God willing, the title, Nope. Mm-hmm. But I don't think there's any chance it could ever become number six's favorite Jordan Peele joint, because we, we, all, we all know what that is. Yes, we do. Do you want me to do it? Get out! Yeah, he likes the early <laughs> shit. He does. He does. <laughs> All right. Uh, it feels like to call that his early work is it feels like cheating a little bit, but whatevs. Yeah, I get that's it. true. It's true. His early cinematic work. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we all love Keanu Peele. Justice for Keanu. Yes. <laughs> I forgot about Keanu. Did uh, he direct Keanu? No. 
right. Well, why are, why are we talking about Keanu? Why are we talking about Jordan Peele? Why are, why are we talking about Top Gun? Obviously, the reason is that in 1966, Patrick McGowan starred of the long-running TV spy series. Danger Man resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create a new series about a spy who resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious, inescapable village where each resident, well, most residents, are referred to only by their number, surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, ahead of its time and innately and unambiguously and lava lampedly of its time, that short-lived, long-tailed series was called The Prisoner. Yeah, it was. Furthermore, mm. in 1976, I was born. Oh, and I so, too, was born what would become a four-film 15-year screen partnership between stars Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor that began with a hit suspense comedy set largely aboard a Los Angeles to Chicago train that also featured 1970s cinema staples Ned Beatty. Yeah. Thank you, Glenn. He's, he's uh, serving you some Otis. So, so the Otis theme from, mm-hmm. from Superman the movie uh ned Beatty pushing vitamin e tablets as good for the old pecker keeps the pencil sharp pg rated movie everybody as well as clifton james and richard kyle who would appear respectively in the first two and the second two roger moore james bond film circa 1973 to 1979 so what i'm saying is that of its time and of its time that serviceable specimen of cinematic locomotion was called silver streak it was. <laughs> and helping us to discuss Silver Streak today is a man with whom I joined on a pop culture happy hour panel a few months ago to talk about The Suicide Squad, which unlike its precursor, does not feature a cameo appearance by The Batman. He is one of the hosts of the Pushkin podcast, Solvable, as well as the host of Leaving the Theater, the movie review podcast he referred to a moment ago, and uh, also a narrative show called Time Well Spent. He's ubiquitous. He's bad. He's internet-wide. He is Ronald Young Jr. Welcome, Big Ron, to a degree. Oh, absolute. Hello, hello. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I can tell you already I feel completely out of my depth good, on good. This, this show. Is- <laughs> so <laughs> we'll, see where, we'll see how this goes. No, this no, is no, the no. plan. This is the plan. Also, Chris, uh, it's Richard Keel, not Kyle. <laughs> I think Keel. I've been corrected on this point before. Mm-hmm. He is not Jack O'Halloran. He certainly isn't. <laughs> he certainly is. So one thing uh, Ronald and I have in common, and I know this because I listened to his Leaving the Theater episode about Spider-Man No Way Home, is uh, an inability to recall the name of the actor J.K. Simmons. Uh, I love him. Really? He's good in everything. Yeah. Uh, okay, maybe not Justice League, but that's not his fault. And there have just been a lot of other good actors who have been Commissioner Gordon in too, too short of a, a time. Yep. But anyway, a great actor whose vocal cadences and whose face shall remain indelibly imprinted on my brain as surely as his name shall once again vanish by the time i end this sentence what were we talking about See? whiplash that's, that's right whiplash. Uh, that's paul that's paul dano to me i can i just always forget yes paul dano i just don't i, I can't he doesn't really mr no mr permanence punchable face you can't remember punchable face well, but it's funny uh, that you said paul dano after i said whiplash because uh the other guy was the other punchable face whose name i'm now blanking on completely. i was about miles <laughs> miles teller miles teller. top gun maverick star Oh, Miles Teller. Oh, God. My, <laughs> my bated breath just got bated. All right, guys. Come on. We're almost through this. So we've welcomed Ron. Welcome, everyone else, to the private, personal, by hand, tangent tolerant, but properly punctuated, punch card driven podcast where we take this unclassable and unforgettable television series, The Prisoner, and uh, related documents. Related. And. <clears throat> okay, hold on. Um, uh, Ronald, we are going to do a bit here. A back and forth, and what's going to happen is, um, boy, just how do you explain this? Uh, um, there is a famous catchphrase uh, from The Prisoner. <laughs> catchphrase. It's a series of statements that uh, are made. Did I do that? Exactly, exactly. And so we do 
uh, a twist on that catchphrase on each episode at the top of each episode where we alternate between the two of us where we try to uh, what the hell do we try to do? That's a very good question. Anyway, we're, we're going to try, he's going he's to go back and do a, a riff for a second, and then after each one, you and I, Ronald, will will rate uh, the effectiveness, the fun of that bit, on a scale from one to six, because, you know, Patrick McGregor huh. number six. I'm in deep water, folks. Yeah, Glenn, see, you don't need thing. to explain how the metric system works. <laughs> One to six is totally normal, natural. It really isn't. So anyway, uh, that's the bit, the and we're 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 hang on tight because <laughs> we're going in <laughs> ready. All right, we push it. Mm-hmm. Like the one time my first car, a 1995 Ford Taurus that I'd bought used, blew up at 3 a.m. in a snowstorm 60 miles west of D.C. as I was barreling up I-66 with my brother to catch a plane to our grandfather's funeral, and no more than 15 minutes after we started hitchhiking. On the side of the road, in the middle of the night, in a snowstorm, my brother and I were picked up by a good Samaritan in a pickup truck whom some years later, by pure random chance, would move in next door to my parents. We, we push it like that, Glenn. Like the way my brother and I pushed the expired Ford Taurus out of the travel lanes to await rescue. Oh uh, Ronald, you, you 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 go first on a scale of one to six. Is it, it is a true story? So you know, there's some yeah. Some maybe maybe I can get that <laughs> See, on a peacock show. I'm so nervous about the rubric here. Um, yeah. I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna be Let safe. Go. I'm gonna give it a three. Okay, that's solid. Okay. That's solid. My rubric, my personal metric, is a combination of uh, uh, appropriateness to the topic at hand and pithiness. Um, so if I were to do appropriateness, that's like a six because he's getting kicked. You know, he's he's walking along a, a dirt desert road. Uh, pithiness, that's a two. So we're gonna split the difference there and give it a three point five. Nice. Fair. I feel good. I feel good about my three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we stamp it like the July 2021 United States Postal Service series devoted to. Western wear. The United States Postal Service celebrates the enduring legacy of Western wear with four fun new forever stamps inspired, like my wardrobe, by the clothing and gear used by working ranchers, not, you know, poser hipsters, uh, reimagined in fun and fanciful ways. These four designs illustrate iconic Western wear staples, a cowboy hat, a cowboy boot with a spur, a Western shirt, belt buckle featuring a long horn head, uh, a stipling technique creating images using small dots and color we used to give the illustrations a worn and gritty feel. Glenn, the history of Western wear in the United States begins with the original cowboys. In the 16th century, the Spanish arrived in Mexico bringing horses and cattle, et cetera, et cetera. We, we stamp it. We stamp it like that, Glenn, like the Western wear. Lord. Um, I'm going to go first on this one, Ronald. Zero. Zero. <laughs> We've got Lucille Benson in there, who is, I think, the closest thing this is to a Western here, because she's a farmer in the West and she's milking a cow. If she, yep. if you would, it, it, you would involve her somehow, tangentially, maybe. But uh, that's as, I, I, I can't give you a zero, so I will give you a one. She tells Gene Wilder to just grab a tit and start pulling, like she's a former United States president or something. Yeah. So was kind of, yeah, yeah. Okay, Ronald, you go. So I, I really like effort, and I feel like that there was a lot. Of- <laughs> this is the podcast for you. You like so, sweatiness, but I feel like I don't like. My heart is saying six, but I feel like logic is pushing it down to a four. So I'm going to give you a four. Okay. All right. I like effort, Lynn. I'm sorry. Uh, All right. At least I, I don't get a rover sound for for that one. All right, yeah. gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you for your kind attention. 
We file it like my decision while reorganizing my LP library a few weeks ago to group film scores, soundtracks, original cast albums, and most controversially, old-time radio recordings into a single category, Glenn. It's that same category where I would put my albums by Henry Mancini, who composed Silver Streak's score. Okay. Uh, which I, I don't you. have, though of course I do have his scores for Touch of Evil, Arabesque, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and, and those films are really why I think I would kind of categorize him as a composer of the 50s and 60s, even though he's got credits, Glenn, going all the way up to 1993, his latter-day career boasting such titles as Santa Claus the Movie, which is from Jaws 2 and Supergirl, auteur Jenna Szwark, uh, the pre-diehard Bruce Willis flop Blind Date, and Ghost Dad, directed by the great and recently departed Sidney Poitier and starring... We, we don't need to talk about it. We really don't need to talk about it anyway. We, we, we file it like, like that. All right. We, uh, I was backed into a corner because the last time you had nothing even remotely appropriate to the film, and now you have... The passing mention of Henry Mancini. So I give you a one for that. I got to give you a two for this, but I, I I want you to feel bad about it. I really do. Okay. Well, just so we can all feel bad. Uh, who who knows the star of Ghost Dad? I, I do. It's of course. Kill Bosby. I want fifty thousand dollars, or I go to the newspaper. You don't try to threaten me. Bill Cosby. Ah! As you've never seen him before. Invisible. Daddy, can I take you to Santa? Ghost Dad. As you've never seen him before, invisible. Okay. <laughs> uh, we index it like the gears of my Cannondale Quick CX3 Wait, hybrid we gotta bicycle. Get runs. We gotta get runs. Sorry, uh, sorry, Ron. <laughs> uh, I didn't like that one as much, so I'll oh, give it a two. <laughs> <laughs> Said you'd be overwhelmed. You're, you're you're vibrating on this on this on the right frequency. Yeah, I'm getting it out. No one likes the star of Ghost Dad as much as they they used to. Yeah, I like Sidney Poitier though. <laughs> Everyone loves Sidney Poitier. We index it like the gears of my Cannondale Quick CX Hybrid bicycle, which after a new cassette, not one but two new shifter cables, and the best efforts of four mechanics at REI here in D.C., Glenn, remains somewhat erratic and unresponsive in its shifting. This is not a problem that cyclists who ride penny-farthing bicycles ever encounter. But I do, Glenn. My, my gears, they need to be indexed. Oh, good Lord. I, I don't understand it, um, so I'm going to give it. And and men- mentioning a penny-farthing bicycle at this point in Come this on. podcast, when, when we have gotten so far past <laughs> the prisoner, <laughs> and we're into... Uh, I, it's a one. It's a one for me, dog. <sighs> It's a one for me as well. I don't like REI. Oh. Okay. Okay. Oh, they've treated me very, very well. I mean, despite their inability to find out what's up with my bike. Uh, we brief more. it. <laughs> we brief it like the beloved preamble to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of ballsiness and just pithiness, uh, that's I'm going to give that a six. That's absolutely a six. That's a, it surprised me. That's absolutely a six. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's not where I thought you were going to go because um, we debrief it, like the beloved preamble to this podcast. Okay, well, that's a one. Uh, yeah, truth, that's a one. Truth, that's a one. Yeah. You can't do that twice, man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I just, I, I didn't expect the first one to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. You gotta believe in yourself, Chris. Hey, hey, we're, we're pulling into the station, guys. Uh, we number okay. it. Look at 
Like Locomotive 4070, the diesel engine that drags the Silver Streak on its eventful journey from Los Angeles to Chicago. Absolutely. So this film, Silver Streak, let's get into it. Now, Ron, Hang what's going to happen is Hang I'm going to barrel through what this What is my plot. score? What is my score for... for oh, that's number. the last one. I didn't realize that was the last one. Oh, okay. Um, uh, uh, five. I, I, I thought it was good. I think it'll give it a three. <laughs> okay. Our inquiry into this unclassifiable and unforgettable television series and related documents is not of a degree half-baked. Nope. It is not of a degree half-assed. Mm, well, debatable, but nope. It is not of a degree half-cocked. Vitamin E, Glenn, keeps the old pencil sharp. Yeah. What is it, Glenn? It's of a degree absolute, Chris. Okay. Uh, the copy that I'm looking at says a degree city primeval in the multiple verse of madness, but uh, yeah. I don't think yeah. I have the new pages, so we'll, yeah. we'll just go with yours. We'll go with mine. We, we are going to do a city primeval miniseries, though. That's definitely happening. It's the new secret of the use. Um, so... Ronald, the way this works is I barrel through the plot of this thing, and then you guys stop me if you want to unpack anything, and there's surprisingly a lot to unpack in this incredibly 1976 film. This is Burnt Ochre the movie. This is just so... Everything about it has a shag carpeting vibe. It is called a buddy comedy thriller. I can find at least three mm. things wrong with that description uh, when it Agreed. comes to this movie. Um, have either of you seen this film before? No. No, and I would have never watched it if I was not going to be on this podcast. <laughs> George Caldwell is taking the Silver Street to Chicago. First class? Yes, sir. Right this way. He's a busy publisher who's taking a train for one reason only. I just want to be bored. Come on. Well, you're in for the ride of your life. You just pick out a little chicky, my friend, and it's hugging much all the way to Chicago. What do you publish? Oh, mostly nonfiction, cookbooks, how to do it books. It's very interesting. Are you married? Divorced. But in the next three days, he will fall in love. He will witness a murder. And become involved in a bizarre international intrigue. All right, listen, Buster, you're in trouble. And I mean big trouble, because I'm reporting you. From an innocent passenger, George Caldwell will become a victim. A man who will be forced to risk his life in order to save it. Hold it! Don't move or I'll shoot! He will fall into possession of the priceless Rembrandt papers and into a perfect frame-up for murder. Holy moly, you shot him! He will make a friend. Who are you? I'm a thief, man. What do you want you for anyway, man? Murder. Drop me off anywhere along in here, okay? I don't mess with the big end. And become a fugitive from the law, wanted in every state. I can't pass for black. You tell me. I didn't say I was going to make you black. I said I was going to get you on the train. It's comedy. That's my man. That's my man. I don't think we'll make it past the cops. We'll make it past the cops. I just hope we don't see no Muslims. It's romance. You've got shoe polish behind your ear. And adventure in the runaway suspense hit of the year. 20th Century Fox presents a Frankie Blinds presentation. Silver Street, starring Gene Wilder, Jill Claiborne, Richard Pryor, and Patrick McGowan as Devereaux. Why are we going so fast? 
It's the most hilarious suspense ride of your life. Nothing can stop Silver Street. Age brings context. In the 70s, this was played on television, unlike the ABC Friday Night movie, again and again. I have seen it several times as a kid. Now, it was cut to ribbons for language. I remember noticing like those really obvious dubs, uh, both for profanity and for racial slurs, of which there are at, at least three hard R. <laughs> oh, so many hard R's. It was yes. PG film, but it's filled with hard R's. <laughs> I didn't think that was going to be in this PG rated movie. Uh, my brother had gone to see this film when he was 14 years old and I was eight. Uh, he, had come, he came back raving about it. He told me all about it. Uh, and a thing, when we get to the Wilder Pryor bathroom scene, um, that was in the TV commercial. That was the clip they played wow. when they went on talk shows. It was in that year's Oscar montage. It was inescapable. <laughs> it was considered Wait. the height. <laughs> who was who was nominated for an Oscar comedy. from this film? Glenn? No, they just did like movies of the year. Like they just did oh, the whole okay. thing. Okay, sure. When Billy Crystal came out and sang Silver Streak, Silver <laughs> Streak, da, 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 da. Billy's Crystal's time. Uh, it was directed by Arthur Hiller, a Canadian-American who did the out-of-towners. He did the in-laws. He did Plaza Suite. So he knew, you know, Neil Simon dialogue. He knew snappy dialogue. Um, he, he also knew this dialogue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Arthur Hiller, who is not Arthur Penn, nope. which uh, as I was watching these credits and I saw how long it took his name to appear, I, I was thinking, I, just, I mean, Bonnie and Clyde was a big deal. It's taking a long time for, for them to introduce the director, even though they're really into this being a um, Frank Yablons yeah, pre- presentation presented by Frank Yablons, producer, which is, I, I'm sorry, I don't know this man's accomplishments, but it's it's a funny name. It is a funny name. Uh, so Arthur Hiller um, was married to the same woman since 1948 and was with her until his death in 2016 at the ripe old age of 92. Wow. So... You know, don't Holy hold cow. that against him. <laughs> he did something right. The uh, film was written by Colin Higgins, an Australian-American, who was, very rare for the time, an out gay man in Hollywood of this era, uh, died of AIDS in 1988 at the age of 47. He also wrote the screenplay to Harold and Maude. And mm. when I learned that today, <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh, a lot of Harold and Maude makes sense now. It has a sensibility that makes sense to me. Uh, he also directed Foul Play, which couldn't have been fun for him because Chevy Chase is a famously homophobic guy who must not have liked taking uh, orders from um, a faggot. And then uh, he also uh, directed Nine to Five, which I'm sure that was a much more pleasant set for him. <laughs> wow. I think that had a sensibility lined up. And he also directed Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Got some stripes. Uh, so I, I read I read the profile of him that appeared in his uh, alma mater's publication, the Stanford Daily, in 1979, and I was gonna make a joke about how he said he appeared in in college in in gaieties, but uh, that's not funny since he's actually gay. So yeah, um, yeah. Sorry, take it back. Um, he did say he wrote this script because he said I always wanted to get on a train and meet some blonde. It never happened, so I wrote a script. Yeah, but see, this is what struck me. When you read that, it's blonde with an E at the end. And I'm sure when he was saying it, he meant blonde <laughs> without the E. But whoever was writing the, writing up the interview. He wanted to get on a train and meet Dolph Lundgren. Yep, and who doesn't? But instead he got Richard Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> well, that hair, what is that? Who is, there's no blondes on this thing, except there's no blondes. I mean, um, There's a, you blondes. 
comma, Frank, but no blondes, correct. Richard Keel is, um, Keel guys, Keel. Richard Keel is brown haired, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's kind Notably. of a big shaggy thing. So this thing is Henry Mancini's score, as you mentioned. It sounds very familiar. It sounds similar to something else that I've heard, um, but I couldn't quite place it. So yeah, stars Gene Wilder. Here's the here's the credits. Gene Wilder, Jill Clayburgh, Ned Beatty, Clifton James, co-starring Ray Walston and Scatman Crothers. We get four <laughs> other names. And then, last build, technically, we get Patrick McGowan, but yeah. he gets the and. Is. And as Richard Devereaux. Or Did is that, that right? No, I don't think so. I think it's just Anne Patrick McGowan. Roger yeah. Devereaux. Yeah, I, I just think it's his name. I don't think okay. that's right. Uh, you're, you're leaving out the fact that all of these credits are appearing in what I would anachronistically call the Lethal Weapon font, Glenn. Yeah, which I, I, guess, yes. I guess not, because uh, that movie came out 10 years after this. So mm-hmm. shows you what I know. Yep. Uh, the opening shots, the establishing shots of this film, are of Union Station in L.A., and man, there is just a sootiness, a grime, a smugginess to these establishing shots. We meet George Caldwell, played by Gene Wilder. He is headed to Chicago from L.A. on the Silver Streak. Um, the man who takes his luggage, the red cap, has mm-hmm. a very distinctive voice. And if you uh, have memorized the film Clue, uh, he is the cop who asks to use the phone. Um, he's the, what's going on around here? And why would you lock me in? And why are you receiving calls from J. Edgar Hoover? He's that guy. Uh, we never really see his face, but it's just that that guy's voice is so indelible if, if you are uh, a clue nerd. Do you remember, Glenn, the part in Blade Runner when uh, M. Emmett Walsh hauls Deckard into his office and says, I need you to go hunt down some skin jobs? Yeah. That's shot at Union Station in Los Angeles. Oh, of course it is. The yes. police station is, uh, yes, yeah, is. Union Station. Uh, Scatman Crothers, who plays the porter, uh, tells us that there are conventioneers on the train and also hippies, um, which is kind of the two ages of man. You start out as a hippie, you end up as a conventioneer. <laughs> we never see the hippies, right? We just see the conventioneers over and over again with their straw hats. I, was the but, lady who hit on Gene Wilder by saying, like, smell my perfume, is she supposed to be a hippie? I can't imagine. Uh, that woman, by the way, is Valerie Curtin, and the her character's <laughs> name is Plain Jane. <laughs> And she is Jane Curtin's cousin, actually. Uh, they do, you can tell they share a gene pool. So you keep waiting for someone to go plain Jane, you ignorant slut, and it yeah, never happens. It never happens. Can we go back to the conventioneers for a second? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that one thing that struck me about them generally was they always seem to be partying. And I, I felt like, I don't know if this is because this movie is like a little bit, be a little bit. Uh, before my era, like uh, I, I was sitting, there, I'm like, is there something about conventioners that makes them want to get drunk and sloppy on trains all the time? Is that is that something I should know, or is this is this something they were doing unique to this movie? What have you have you never gone and taken a stroll by the Omni Shoreham during CPAC, Ronald? <laughs> Those Turning Point from, USA kids, uh, stay as far away from uh, from just, CPAC just, as possible. Once I find oh out that it's happening uh, and where it yep. is. Yep. Mm-hmm. But I think, Ronald, if you are a conventioneer in 2022 or so, mm-hmm. um, you're not going to be keeping the straw hat on every time we see you. Like the straw, like no. wearing the straw, they commit to the straw yeah. hat look. Yeah. And it's probably even styrofoam. It's probably styrofoam. Yeah. Towards the end of the movie, which I, one of them, the brim is completely yep. gone. I noticed that. <laughs> made me laugh out loud. I don't know. I was like, what happened to this guy? Think of all the stunt hats they have to have. I mean, you, you need duplicates of every piece of wardrobe, right? This is not a, a huge budget film. So. Here's my take on that. I think 
that actor who realized he was basically going to be a background extra decided that he would remove his rim uh, of his hat so that he, he could stand out from the crowd. That's my. It worked. It works, right? You you do notice. And who did time. he grow up to be? <laughs> I don't know, Chris. Who did he grow up to be? Wait, I don't uh, know. Glenn, before you go too far again, I want to put a pin in this so that we talk about it later. Uh-huh. Uh, Chris, you mentioned the budget, and I made sure I wrote this note that I think yeah. the budget for the first half of this movie, there's a gross disparity between the budget <laughs> for the first half of this movie versus the last half of this movie. So I just True. want to make sure I've said that so that we can talk about it, Okay, especially when we get to the second half of this it's movie. It's a very good point. It's a very good point. <laughs> uh, we established that Scatman Crothers, after he shows um, George... Gene Wilder to his room and he and George sees Jill Clayburgh in her underwear because the partition between their room is he goes and opens up the door between their chambers. Uh, Scatman Crothers enjoys uh, the occasional postprandial tipple. He's a man with a flask and he ceremoniously uh, bids goodbye to LA as they pull out of Union Station. Come on, LA! Train company, uh, did you guys notice this? Is called Amroad, <laughs> mm. which doesn't make mm. any sense, no. but it has the same red, white, and blue kind of logo as Amtrak yeah. does. So familiar. Um, we meet Ned Beatty here. Uh, and Ned Beatty is Bob Sweet. He's a vitamin salesman, as you mentioned, Chris. Sweet name, but a mean baby, he says. Mm. What? <laughs> <laughs> what, what does that mean? Uh, I want to interrupt here to to make a plea for us to bring back the super horny PG rated movie, okay. you guys. One thing that has emerged on on this show before, I think Glenn was talking about his revisit of old episode of, of Dynasty, and and certainly it seemed like film and TV used to take a more democratic approach to sex, like it wasn't just for you know young slender people. And uh, I mean, this this movie posits that Ned Beatty can get laid, Gene Wilder can get laid. It was the '70s. I mean, it was the it was the the decade between the pill and then AIDS, right? Mm-hmm. So so mm-hmm. probably you didn't even have to get on a train and and uh, find people being subject to the the locomotion uh, or whatever whatever it is that Ned Beatty says makes everyone so uh, so receptive. Uh, on, <laughs> That's exactly on riding what he the said. rails. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, just the, full of horn dogs. This whole movie, in a, in a way that I thought was sort of you know, sort I'm of nice. <laughs> Here, Here, there's a sample for you. Vitamin E. Now that is great for the old pecker. <laughs> yeah, it really keeps a pencil sharp. I'm not kidding. Have you had a uh, chance yet to uh, check out the action? No. Well, you're in for the ride of your life. Mm-hmm. You just pick out a little chicky, my friend, and it's hugging Munch all the way to Chicago. <laughs> really? I do it all the time. It's a cat house on wheels. <laughs> hey, listen, come on. It's something about the movement of the train that does it. All that motion makes a girl horny. <laughs> I think this movie makes an argument that this kind of horny 70s vibe should be buried forever, and I'll tell you what does that. <laughs> uh, three words. Hug... And munch. It's hug and munch. Yes. All yes. the way oh to Chicago. Yes. Gross. Yes. I feel like HBO is the only place you could say that now. Um, Are you that... your high? <laughs> <laughs> of course. That has an effectiveness to it that it might not even know it has. Because it's got these two like short uh, sounds. Like, uh, uh. 
Uh, you mm-hmm. got a hard sound, a hard G at the end of hug, and then munch, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, which is, it's troubling. It's troubling. Yeah. Like, that's the alpha and omega of the sexual act between hugging and munching. Oh, boy. Glenn, Glenn is DTF, everybody, down to phonics. Don't um, check that's... my spelling. So, yes. Anyway, this lounge, I do like this lounge car, by the way. I mean, I don't want any of the people in it. Who, everybody's wearing a tie, by the way. That's also like... Oh, that, that like food was repellent. Up. That Whatever that cream cheese side dish was. Well, we'll, was we'll get to that, Chris, because that, so if you gross. notice, those but, were two large gentlemen, and they were drinking a tabs and eating cottage cheese because, you see, they're uh, fat, and that's funny. And the fact that they want to lose weight with this diet food is funny. That was the Oh, joke. is cottage cheese diet... Food? Yes, is it that is. okay? Yes, it All is. right, yeah. lost yeah. on me, but makes sense now. That uh, actually that tracks because later on in the same movie, they have a fat guy with grocery sacks in his hands, and I felt a little irritated by that. I'm like, man, you guys are driving a point home. I don't know what point you're driving home, but I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> but I still feel like it's it's less repetitive and, and fat shaming than uh, John Williams giving Ned Beatty a, a, a solo tuba little motif in Superman, the movie, whenever he's on screen. Agreed. Sure. Sure. I thought that had more to do with his stupidity than his uh, size. Okay. It's a great score, except for that part. We will have to come back and revisit this Mm -hmm. Ned Beatty character because this is an act, right? Yes. All of a sudden, when he reveals himself to be a federal agent, this whole elaborate um, character work that he's doing falls away. He loses whatever kind of weird sleazy accent sure. he has, which which includes actually going up and hitting on Jill Clayburgh and, and uh, getting getting that? a drink well, thrown in well, his see, lap. That's the thing, though. Was he did he know that she was connected to Devro? Because I'm like, if 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 we thought uh, that this yeah. was all an act and he knew she was connected to Devro, because he straightened up real quick when he started talking when he started talking to Caldwell uh, later on, yeah. and so it feels like. More than likely now when I think about it, even when you say hug and munch and all that, I'm like, oh, okay, so <laughs> it was all an act then, right? But yeah. maybe they just didn't, it wasn't written well enough for us to fully know that. But I, if they told me that now, I would believe the writers. I mean, the writer. Yep. Now it makes sense why he does approach uh, Jill Clayburgh's character because he is trying to get in with her and the fact that he thinks he can get in with her is, you know. Yeah, but it, he does it in such a... Eternal. Such an aggressive way, you know, and like, right, and and I mean, if he were at all good as a as a cop, right, as a federal agent, you'd think he he would do a few minutes of observation. I mean, she basically comes on to Gene Wilder, right, in the dining car later. She comes over and invites herself to sit down at his table, yep. and they. So this is a lady who, um, you know, engage her in a little pleasant conversation and don't like make an overt advance in the first five minutes, and she'll probably at least talk to you, right? But so, Chris, she she makes overt advances in the first five minutes that she's talking to Gene. Like, and I guess, I guess it depends on what we're calling overt, but there were several times where I'm like, Oh, clearly you're talking about sex here. Like what, mm-hmm. what it, it's the shoes on the other foot in this scenario yeah. with you and Gene Wilder. Yeah. <laughs> who is somehow defense, a come up I mean, from Ned Beatty. <laughs> it's Gene Wilder. It's a middle-aged Gene Wilder. How helpless was she? Um, <laughs> oh, mostly nonfiction. Gardening, cookbooks, how to do it books. Like sex manuals? I've edited a few. An authority. Hmm? I know what goes where. 
Why? It's very interesting. Are you married? I looked this up because I'm obsessed. Gene Wilder is 43. <laughs> In this movie, he's 43 years old. Yeah. Really? Ned Beatty, 39. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. And this movie? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I am 37. I... I don't see it, guys. <laughs> okay, well, you know what, Ron? You're still younger than Ned Beatty in this film, and I'm not, and I'm not even younger than Gene Wilder. So uh, this, is, this is an upsetting conversation Either of those ages me. is all I'm saying. I'm saying we're all safe as far as I'm concerned. Oh. The, um, in the, in the, later in the dining car, plain Jane, uh, uh, Valerie Curtin, comes in, and Gene, and Gene Wilder, George, tries to hide from her like he's some gift. Right, like yes, like yep. he's better than her, and then yes. Jill Clayburgh comes. Uh, Hilly uh, joins him. They clumsily flirt. There is 1976 sophistication in this back and forth. I think it's really badly written, and um, I don't think they can sell it. I think it might be in the energy, in the in the in the swiftness of it. I think it needs to be either faster or delivered with more energy. We learn that she is a secretary to Professor Arthur Schreiner, who has written a book on Rembrandt. Cut to Professor Arthur Schreiner getting the the shit kick out of him. Elsewhere on the train, uh, we learn that goons need to look for his papers. Look, he was very good to me. He taught me everything from the pill to Picasso. What was missing? Oh, marriage license. Is that what you want? I did then. Right now, I'd like some more champagne. Shall I get another bottle? Two. When we cut back to the dining car, you know, uh, after Gene Wilder has pretentiously ordered uh, a bottle of Mouton Cadet, they have switched to champagne. Um, however, the champagne they're drinking is Corbel. Does that mean anything to either of you guys? No, but I'd love to hear what it means to you. <laughs> uh, Corbel <laughs> is today, 2022, a $12 champagne. Okay. <laughs> Now, I admire the efficiency of this. You start with a, uh, a cocktail, as they did. Then you move on to a nice bottle of wine. But then you start guzzling the cheap stuff. It is efficient. I, I admire this game. This, this game that he's caught, it's going to work. That's going to work. Oh, man. Yeah, but then they're going to go back and, and like try to have sex in this cramped little train car and uh you know like the the bathroom is, is just it's right there and and i'd be pacing myself in this scenario like i'd probably have the cocktail and maybe uh you know one more glass of wine or something then i'd, I'd probably be done for the evening because uh well before we get to their train car we get the fat guy coming down the aisle and he has to kind of uh, edge past him then he falls into a woman's room and uh, she shouts uh, rape Yes, and, and the idios mio part, oh and the idios mio rape is that's that stayed in. <laughs> yeah, it's that not really, only stays uh, in; it, it it persists, Glenn. It does. It, it persists. Yeah, right. callback. Yeah, I'm saying, and when when this was shown on on television, they didn't take that out to make room for some more Sanka commercials or something. Oh, I know for a fact they kept the rape yeah. joke in um, mm. because uh, you know it was 1976 and ha 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 rape, but. Uh, and they kept the fat joke in. They kept the racist stuff in because, you know, it was a different time. He does enter mistakenly Patty McGee's room. Uh, Patty McGee, looking good. Like, our, our man Patrick is is keeping it together in, in the year of our Lord, 1977. 47, in his Columbo era. Yep, prime Columbo era. 
He's, he's uh, hanging tough. I agree. He's hanging tough. And uh, Gene Wilder does a bit. What do you call those glasses that that have rims on the bottom but not on the top that he's wearing? What the hell uh, are, are they? Those? Foster Grants or Aviators? I don't know what they are. No, they're not Foster Grants. Foster they Grants might. are what Yafet Koto was wearing in Midnight Run when Robert De Niro kept calling him Agent Foster Grant. Well, it's a brand, so it could be anything. Yeah, no, I know, but the like the frame on the bottom but not on the top. They're not bifocals, I don't think. They're uh, my mom used they're... to call them cheaters. Okay, uh, but yeah. they're it's just kind of a weird, weird, weird design. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so uh, he does. He goes a bit. He taps the walls. That's not a bad bit, you know. I, I'll give it to them. Um, he does finally make it into their room where the porter has had the partition between them removed. She goes over to this. I think it's a tape recorder the size of a mini fridge, and she just presses this gigantic chunk button, and you hear some noodly piano jazz. They kiss, they drink, they talk about gardening. I was checking my phone. I thought this was the height of unsexiness, but y'all tell me. You all tell me what it is. So, okay, so two things. One, you said something about 1970s movies and this this setup, which for me, I checked my phone on this part too. But two things I remember. One, the scoring on 1970s movies is always a little tricky because sometimes they'll put silence on, but there'll be visual moments happening. And for mm. us, especially us that watch movies all the time, I could forget that, oh, I need to be looking at the screen because something important could be happening, even though there's no musical cues to tell me that something important right. is happening. However, when they get into the room, two things I notice: One, they have that score playing under underneath them for a long, long mm. time. And two, Gene Wilder kisses with his eyes open, and they have zero chemistry in any of these yeah. any of this kissing. And watching it was so cringy. It was I was like, ah, stop! I don't. I'd like you to stop kissing, please. This is I, I don't, I don't yeah. No, I mean Gene Gene Wilder is is not sexy. He does not exude <laughs> that. But I was kind of leaning into this because I was basically expecting Joe Clayburgh, who I who I did like a lot and who I, I found very appealing and warm. To I, I expected her to to turn into a femme fatale somehow. Like she just seems mm, too interested better. in well, him. Right. Yeah, I mean they are riffing on Hitchcock. They are riffing on. Uh, yeah, this, this yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, in his review of this film, uh, Vincent Canby said something about how she seems too intelligent to play a believable ingenue or something, which I think is is right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I but I still liked her. Yeah, I liked her, but no chemistry is my only. Yeah, no, yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. thing. So <laughs> they talk. They do this whole. Uh, Chris, did you have some of these lines about the tending your garden and all kinds of stuff? Do you have any of those written down by any chance? Because I didn't. Because oof. The... <laughs> where is it? he edits sex manuals and gardening manuals, and uh, I have to confess I'm better at gardening. No, I, I they they return to I know what goes where and why, and yeah. then she repeats that back to him once they get back to the room. But you have to be stern with gardenias or something, something like that. I, I, I oh yeah, okay, that thing. I did kind of tune out the the actual specifics of, of botany. Yes, <laughs> I'll I'll drop that in. Always be nasty to nasturtiums. Is that so? They love that. They like it rough. The rougher, the better. Great. What else should I know? I could teach you the secret of how to treat azaleas. I'm all ears. (laughs) I can see that. Well, just treat them the same way as you would a begonia. No kidding. That's gospel. You mean what you're saying is what's good for azaleas is good for begonias? You've got it. George, this is fascinating. So later on, she's going down on his 
stamen and or pistol. I don't know what it is, but uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> again, PG rated movie, and yeah, uh, there she goes. Yeah. Although and to be fair, I mean, there's there's a big BJ joke in Ghostbusters uh, eight years after this too, which which was totally lost on me, you know, when my my dad took me to that movie in 1984. Yeah, but when they do the wider shot, his pants are zipped up, and I, so I don't know yeah. what's going on there. Anyway, he sees a body of a man shot in the head hanging outside his window, and then that man falls. Uh, Jill Clayburgh, <laughs> Hilly, her first thought is, it could have been a kid's kite. <laughs> That's her go-to. <laughs> could have been a kid's kite. Which put so, me in again, mind I'm thinking, I'm thinking femme fatale, right? She wants to drive him crazy by telling him he didn't see what he saw. But kids kite, Chris. It's nighttime. <laughs> this is put me in mind of that Bart Simpson thing where you know he's he's flying the kite and it seems so unwholesome. And she looks up at Marge and he goes, "Hello, mother dear." It's like that. <laughs> That's the kite that he's flying. Um, so the next morning, he realizes the man he saw was Professor Schreiner. He goes to Schreiner's room, where Ray Walston. Now Ray Walston, by this point had had a pretty successful career. He had been on My Favorite Martian, yet he's playing, he's an older gentleman, playing a gunsel, playing a goon. He's mm-hmm. tossing the room. Uh, he's evidently been Mr. Whiny. Yeah. Mr. Whiny. Mr. Whiny. Mr. Whiny. his name. He acts uh, Shifty and Six, Richard Keel on Poor George, and Keel is rocking the Jaws teeth, right? A yep. full yes. year mm-hmm. before The Spy Who Loved Me. Did you That's find right. anything right. to explain that? Maybe there's real teeth? I don't know. They reference it, but they don't explain it. Yeah, right. McGowan says he has some very unpleasant dental work. Yes. Yeah, I think that was a that's a character bit. Anyway, uh, he tosses uh, George off the train. We get... Which, since we're talking about this, uh, yeah. Jaws also has a train fight with Roger Moore in The Spy Who Loved Me. So clearly, oh, right. uh, the you know, Cubby Broccoli did not see this movie and go, oh, maybe we should write a different scene <laughs> for this Maybe he saw this movie. like that. Do that. Yeah, like that. yeah, I guess. Um, We get a very long walking scene. He finally stumbles across a farm, and this is Lucille Benson, who is milking a cow. Uh, Lucille Benson, uh, for the gays among you, played Lily Sinclair on Bosom Buddies. She was the the, kind of the landlady of the Susan B. Anthony Hotel. Uh, For the straights among you, she also ran the Snake-O-Rama in the film Duel, uh, the Steven Spielberg film Duel. Oh, Um, I haven't seen either of those movies, so I don't know where I'm classified here. (laughs) The truck that's chasing uh, the guy. Yeah, okay. I, I just saw that a few years ago. It, yeah. It's it's good, Ronald. It's uh, definitely. I'll check you know, it out. Go back I'm not and... a post. But I, I really, I sound, Bosom Buddy sounds more by speed, though. <laughs> well, Bosom Buddies is a series starring Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari from the 80s in which they stay at a woman's hotel and to do so they dress in drag. And that's why. Uh, Scolari just, gotcha. just died, right? Like very, very Scolari recently. Scolari just died, right. yes, unfortunately. My Spielberg blind spots are much more embarrassing than Duel. I'll, uh, I'll leave it at that. Okay. Uh, she flies him to Stably, uh, the town of Stably. They overtake the Silver Streak. They buzz some sheep um, a lot, right? There's a, there's a lot of sheep buzzing. More sheep buzzing in this film than I anticipated. Yeah. This movie is not exactly a freight train of suspense. You know, I, I, I mean, leaving aside the fact that it's, it's called a buddy movie. Mm-hmm. In 48 hours, it does not take Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy an hour to get together. In Lethal Weapon, it doesn't take an, you know more than half the movie for the two buddies to have their first scene together. You know, Richard Pryor shows up 63 minutes into yeah. this movie. Yes, like, he does. What the hell? Yes, Which he is does. wild, especially for an hour and 53 minute movie. Because <laughs> yeah. it, right. it's like, what are you, what are y'all doing? Uh, <laughs> 
I know we're going to touch more on that, but I just wanted to say I really enjoyed Lucille Benson. Um, yeah. I thought she was like when she, while she was there, I would have enjoyed seeing more mm-hmm. of her in the movie. But I could tell she had that featured role, and once she was gone, she was gone. But I really enjoyed her. I, I, I saw no reason to get rid of her. Uh, but I mean, except that they had to continue advancing the plot. But it seemed like he kept picking up picking up partners and losing them throughout the entire mm-hmm. uh, film, which. Mm-hmm. I know it was by design for some reason, but I'm not sure what that design was. I don't necessarily think it did anything for the film. So, yeah, I know, I know. It, you it know, sh- I, I it would be interesting to like when when exactly a uh, story was was published. The um, uh, you know, the guy who who Brian Cox. I, I actually took this man's course in 2003. The guy who wrote story. What's his name? Come on, Brian Cox plays the parody version of him in the movie adaptation. Menser? No, I can't remember. I remember it's not Meisner. No, nope, <laughs> not Meisner. <laughs> McPhee? Robert McKee. Robert McKee. McKee. Yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to remember when story was published, but I would guess it was sometime in the 80s because we in this film, we are not yet to that point where every little note of a screenplay has to come back and pay off mm-hmm. at the end, where absolutely everything has to be checked off to, to sort of a wearying degree, to a point that it almost you know becomes more like a bit of clockwork than a, than a story that has any, any room to... To breathe. I don't know, Chris, because the very next scene is uh, George catching up to the Silver Streak, and he's led aboard by the conventioneers. You know, yes. the, so <laughs> Chekhov's conventioneer goes off yeah, in this act. Right. Yes. <laughs> they were set up in the first act. Uh, right. See, if he, if he had found some way to uh, use his his knowledge of flora to defeat Magoon in the end, that's true. That's what would happen now. You're absolutely right. He gets to the dining car and he sees Haley holding hands with our man, Patty McGee, Roger Devereaux. This is when we get his name because Roger Jack Beattie Devereaux. tells him he was Chicago's own jet setter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some very like, heavy competition. Sounds like a contradiction in terms. He follows them to their car. Uh, Haley goes into her compartment. Uh, Devereaux keeps walking. He gets back into his room. The partition is back up. He reunites with her. He tells her everything. They get interrupted by Patty McGee. And... This is why you hire a Patrick McGowan. He is unruffled. He's very cool. He's very calm. He's very collected. Are you all right? Yes, I'm fine. Oh, that's good news. As soon as I was told, I contacted the police from Albuquerque and told them to spare no expense to make sure you were safe. Reese, he's like a child, got off the train and tried to find you, say he was sorry. How did you get back on? Who is Reese? He's the one that threw you off. You, you must remember him, a large man with not very attractive dental work. I do remember, but what has he got to do with you? He works for me. He's my chauffeur. Not very bright, but extremely loyal. And naturally, I assume total responsibility for all his actions and will pay for any damages. He almost is believable. Like, there's, you, there's a, he reaches a point where he's so good at being this erudite prick that apologizing for having the goon throw George off the train that you almost buy it. You know, it's funny that you, it's funny that you say that because I, now there's two things I want to point out. One, <laughs> he sounds like Alan Rickman in this film to me. Sure. Like he sounds like he's doing a very strong impression mm. of Alan Rickman. And there's something that Linda says about Alan Rickman in Die Hard, where she mentions that uh, that if you don't, if you're if you're not careful, if he doesn't shoot that guy in the head uh, at that one point, did you end up rooting for uh, right. rooting for that character for Hans Gruber? It's a very nice suit, Mr. Takagi. To be ashamed to ruin it. I'm going to count to three. 
there will not be a fall. Give me the code. He has to blow Mr. Takagi's head off so that we don't end up rooting for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the minute that they close the door and they Hilly and George Cald- Caldwell split ways, he smacks Hilly in the face. Then we automatically know that he's 100% Ooh, a bad guy. Yep. We should not be rooting for him. So yep. interesting connection. He smacks her in the face in a way that would be really heard through a plywall partition at the door. 100%. To the house, but, 100%. And and also when the the I know we get the N word several times in this movie, but the second time we get it, it's from McGowan. And um, no, we'll get there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah we we'll, gotta get that we'll, first we'll get one first. It's, it's striking. It is yeah. striking how that yeah. is delivered. But we're coming yeah. to that. Yeah. Uh, when George says he saw Professor Schreiner sh- tossed off the train, that's when Professor Schreiner shows up. Uh, so George leaves. He's despondent. Patty McGee slaps Hilly uh, in the lounge. George is getting drunk. And he is drunkenly telling the whole story to Bob, who now we learn is a federal agent. Um, In this scene, George Wilder attempts to smoke, but his cigarette goes up in flames. And if you notice, nobody in this movie smokes. Everybody in this movie holds a cigarette, an unlit cigarette, out of the corner of their mouth. It is disquieting. It is distracting. (laughs) I don't get it, but I imagine it's some kind of code, right? Like an in-movie code, like, yeah, the, like to a help Hayes the code, except so, for so the seventies. You can, you can. Oh, you can okay. Say, no, so you're you actually talking munch, but you can't smoke. <laughs> okay. Mm, huh. Got you. Got you. I don't know. I I wouldn't think that that would be something that was not permitted in in the seventies. In fact, I'm I'm sure it was permitted in the seventies. I feel like they were definitely smoking when they made this movie. I, I like strange. that that content warnings now you know will will advise you that there are depictions of smoking and <laughs> yeah, but the fact remains both George and Mr. Whiny just spend entire scenes with a cigarette dangling, unlit cigarette dangling out of the corner of their mouth. I, I think weird. actors like props. I think yep. they like business. Yeah, um, that's a good point. So he and Bob go up to the roof of the train, and uh, Bob finds a cloth. Now there is some yeah. really ingenious editing in this scene to disguise. Beatty's stunt double. Uh, it is. It's really good because <laughs> we we never see his face. We just mm, see. No, I I kind of I kind of did. Okay. Uh, turns out here's the whole MacGuffin of the plot. Devereaux's status as a credible appraiser of art was in jeopardy because Schreiner uh, Schreiner uh, was writing this book, so he decides to kill the professor, replace him with a fake professor who'll discredit the book. And then kill everybody on the train. You know, it's it's a uh, it's it's sure sure. That was Hans Gruber's plan: kill all the hostages and fake his own death. Um, I wouldn't have thought of it if Ron hadn't pointed out the similarity. But there you go. Sure. I, I I promise you, no one who has seen this film will remember this detail, Glenn. But I but I'm going to quiz you anyway. What is a far more recent, far more to return to your point, Ron? A lavishly budgeted film. That has a lot of plot points, so no one could be blamed for overlooking this one. But there is a major plot point where a, a character in this film is being blackmailed because they authenticated a Oop, painting. This is Tenet. Turned out. This is Tenet. <laughs> he got Tenet. Oh, shit. Wow. Yeah, okay. I yep. didn't think anybody would. Wow. I watched okay. that movie seven times, and it only got good. I, I really started to love it after the seventh time with the All subtitles right. on. I, so. I loved it the first time, but I understood it less the second time. <laughs> I got my sort of career high 64% comprehension of it first time and I still love it but I don't completely get it anyway uh, I, I have for both of you gentlemen uh, a, a word and a gesture 
This is this is where uh, Glenn usually makes the jerk off motion. Yep. <laughs> for for the listener. <laughs> but Ron, by watching that movie seven times, you performed your own temporal pincer movement. Good for you. Good for you. Temporal pincer movement. Well, these guys they come right through the turnstile, right, and you get them in a vice grip of sort of a space time continuum. I know we're derailing, but I promise you. <laughs> if, oh, we're derailing the silver streak. But nice. I promise you, though, the eighth or ninth time, I'm going to finally understand the massive temporal pencil movement they do at the end of that movie because I'm trying to watch it and be like, make it make sense. I don't get how this is happening, please. But I love that movie so much, and I get a little bit more of it every time. But yep. yes, yeah. you're right. The yep. blackmail scene, the blackmail, that way of blackmail makes zero sense to me, yep. as it didn't in this movie as much either. Yeah, I mean, if anything, it feels the closest to a kind of a Hitchcock, clunky Hitchcock plot point, you know, yeah. yes. it kind of feels yeah. like the thing you don't care about, you're not supposed to care about, so mm-hmm. props to that, because obviously that's what they're reaching for. Right. Uh, they go to look for the Rembrandt letters, which were hidden in a copy of the book right. the professor gave to Hilly for safekeeping. As they go into a tunnel and the lights go out, Sweet is shot and killed by a mysterious assailant. Uh, the porter, Scott Mancruthers, comes by, sees George standing over Sweet's body with Sweet's gun. Mistaking him for the murderer, there's a chase scene, um, and this run is the pivot point of the movie when we start to get more budget. George runs to the storage car, Correct. proceeds to drop <laughs> Sweet's gun out the window. He's pursued by Jaws, pursued by Bear. He's pursued by Jaws. Uh, Exunt. George hangs off the side of the car, and again, it's actually Gene Wilder hanging off the side of the car here, and it's not a green screen. It, there's some green screen. Um, or I guess blue screen back then of mm-hmm. of Jaws of, of Richard right. Keel when he's on the top of this guy, but Jaws trips. He shoots Jaws with a handy harpoon that happened to be in the storage. <laughs> Had one right by him. Chekhov's harpoon. Yeah. Uh, it was. I guess that's. You can't carry your harpoon in your carry on. You have to, <laughs> because you have to I guess there are... you can't kill Jaws without a harpoon, right? <laughs> Hey, <laughs> yeah. Not with three barrels. Not, with, not with three. I guess on this train there are conventioneers, uh, hippies, and whalers. I think these are the three. <laughs> um, yes, uh, Bob Marley takes a jet, but the whalers have to travel back. Uh, okay, nicely done. Okay. Uh, so any, anyway, Keel uh, is out of the film. He falls off Thank the you. train. Uh, George then gets clotheslined by a train signal. He falls off the silver streak. We get some more walking scenes. He does eventually, this is like Lord of the Rings here. There's so many walking scenes. He does eventually get picked up by a pickup. But we don't see any of that. We just see the pickup truck drop him off in front of the sheriff's station. And then (laughs) Gene Wilder says, thanks, Eddie. And like, (laughs) we never meet Eddie. We've never... I seen missing, and I'm happy for him. Eddie's whole part was cut out. What later famous actor do we think played Eddie? Uh, it's Harry Dean Stanton. Dick Van Dyke. Harry Dean Stanton, yes. Harry Dean Stanton, when he was only 75. Yeah, uh, the, time, <laughs> the time checks out. He goes into the sheriff's office and meets a uh, violence-besotted sheriff, Chauncey. Played. How, did this delight you, Chris? This is Clifton James, the guy from Live and Let Die and the man with the golden gun. He plays the same annoying hick lawman uh, in those Bond movies. Yep. They loved him so much, uh, they had to bring him back for another one. I don't get it. Not then, not now, not in those, not in this, but but hey, here he is. He's playing a variation of the theme here. He has, does not have the Foghorn Leghorn accent that he does in those films, but this is him. <laughs> uh, Gene Wilder tries to tell the sheriff what happens, but the sheriff doesn't believe him. There's another attempt at snappy dialogue here. There's a who's on first Glenn, bit between them. What, can you tell me, I'm not sure, what is a Foghorn Leghorn accent? Can you like... 
Can you do one for me? I don't well, I'll, I'll say, I'll say. Oh, okay, uh, that's, that's what it is. I'm just a simple country chicken. Like, that's... that's, uh, that's just uh, want to make sure we had that on tape. It's good producing. That shows you why Ron is in demand, both as an on-air talent and behind-the-scenes. Okay. Right. There's an attempt here at a who's on first bit, um, as they as they explained, but there's no energy, there's no speed. It needs to be up here, Arthur Hiller. You need to. You're, you're killing me here. These are two good actors. You could you could have them go boom 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 boom. It could be fast. It could work. Um, I don't know. I, I kind of thought who shot Rembrandt was was funny. Who shot this Rembrandt fellow? If it right. came faster and funnier, yeah. it would be it would work. Uh, he gets uh, a call on his hotline. <laughs> I like the thought that they have a hotline reporting that George is wanted for multiple murders. Uh, George holds the sheriff hostage, steals his car, and then finally. But before Fine. you before you go that okay. past that part, uh, yeah. that while the snappy dialogue wasn't there for them, the Rembrandt part, what was there was the movement scene of them trying to of the sheriff trying to get his gun from uh, from Gene Wilder, which I thought I don't know why that tickled me. Just watching them move and try to get it, and the how concerned the sheriff looked trying to get to the gun, and then how easily he was disarmed. I thought that was like that's why you get these two people in this scene specifically, uh, and I feel like that happened several times. Gene Wilder in a person, but like you said, the one we've all been waiting for comes right after this scene. Finally, yeah, but, you why we bought the ticket. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But Ronald, that's a good point because they do set up visually that the gun is in the office. The sheriff notices the gun in the office, and is that is all done without any any pointing to it. It's all yes. part yeah. of the scene. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that works. That works. Yeah. Maybe he was so focused on that that he forgot about the the back and forth. But finally. At the uh, one hour and three minute mark, we meet Richard Pryor as, tell me his name, because I don't think they ever mentioned it in the damn movie. Well, hang on. Grover. Jill Clayburgh twice refers to him as Grover. And each, even the second time, after I already learned from Jill Clayburgh that his name was Grover, I was like, wait, Gro his name is Grover again? Yep. I thought I imagined that the first time. Because he both, every time he's, everybody's yeah. asked him uh, what his name is. He always says a thief. Uh, that's, uh, but I, I don't remember him saying his name, but maybe they spent a lot of time together driving. Maybe it came up then. I'm not a murderer. I'm trying to prevent one. But in about a minute, we're going to be surrounded by cops. If you can get us out of it, you'd be doing both of us a favor. What do you think? I think you better make a right up here and then a sharp left. I'm coming over. They bash through a roadblock to enter Kansas. This movie is getting its car chase demolition vibe. It's very Blues Brothers at this point. This was a thing. Sorry. Sorry, my ass. You dangerous. Proves one thing, though. You don't do this for no living. No, I don't. All right. Just take it easy. I'm going to take over in a minute. The fact that they, they go through the roadblock and then it's another scene was almost jarring to me because I, I so my dad loves the movie The Blues Brothers and I it, it's been passed down to me. And the fact that that scene does not last 15 minutes that like when the first police car gets tipped over, the, you know, like Booker T and the MGs don't start playing and oh, yeah. we don't watch, you know, 40 other police cars get wrecked. It was a real shock to me. I was like, oh, wait, it's just that we're just doing that. OK, OK, we're getting on with the movie. Good. Yeah, that was a relief to me too. Because there's so many, <laughs> so many movies of this era are just pile up car scenes, pile up car chases, pile up, pile up, pile up. Right, and I mean, in the Blues Brothers, they're like deliberately elongated for yeah. for comic effect, and and I do think it works in that movie, and and the music makes it more tolerable. But but anyway, yeah. But that's I realized too. That's mm -hmm. when uh, Richard Pryor says his name. Because after oh. he crashes through the cars, he announces it to the sheriff who did it oh, and right. what, what he did. Yeah. Hmm. Hey, Chauncey! Yeah. There's a Grover T. Muldoon! 
You want to know what happened? We just whooped your ass! We whooped your ass! So a little bit later, George and Grover are in a used par- parking used car lot, and they steal a car that is pure pussy. Speaking of hugging much, pure <laughs> pussy. Um, the Night Watchman. Again, a PG-rated movie where uh, Richard yeah. Pryor said, what is this, like, that's the jerk-off mobile and this is pure pussy? Mm-hmm. A decade after this, my parents took me to see Back to the Future, and I think Marty McFly says, oh, shit, a couple times. And my mom's like, ah, you know, clapping her hands over my ears. So, boy, <laughs> 1976. God. That's adorable, yeah. and it tells me a lot about you. Um, <laughs> so the Night Watchman catches Richard Pryor and butts out the N-word with what I can only call a practiced ease. Uh, yes! It is, it is shocking <laughs> yes, how casually you, yes. it comes out. It is like, wow, that didn't even, he didn't even think about that. I mean, There's, there's only a few N-words you hear where it's like, did are there more than one in in the N word? Like it's just like it's like you tripled the consonants across all of the across all of the double consonants. It's just it's ridiculous. <laughs> it is it is remarkable. Uh, yeah. The actor's name is Raymond Guth. He has this huge IMDb page, the size of a CBS receipt, uh, that takes him all the way up to doing voice work for Bioshock Two in 2010. Right, that is wow. a long career. No, longer than Henry Mancini. That's true. He's ninety-seven years old. He is still alive as we tape this. Uh, anyway, he gets assaulted, and we get a lengthy series of driving shots, and we get Gene Wilder with the unlit cigarette in his mouth. And here we are. We have arrived at the crux. Um, they arrive at the Kansas City uh, train uh, station. I want to say the costume note that the fact that that uh, Grover Richard Pryor is wearing this purple satin jacket that has an, an Arbo- Army Airborne Rangers patch on it. For I why? It. I, I, I love it. I don't know the story. Why? I mean, obviously, that's not the original jacket that patch was on, but it's so cool. And it made me just think, like, what is what is Grover's backstory? I, yeah. <laughs> He's a thief. That's all you need to know. They discover that George is front page news and... Uh, yada 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 the only way they can get him on the train is if he wears shoe polish on his face and proceeds to have a bit where he attempts to get his jive on i can't pass for black who you telling i didn't say i was gonna make you black i said i was gonna get you on the train now we got to make them cops think you're black it'll never work never what are you afraid it won't come on oh that's a good joke that's humorous like that may i this scene goes on forever (sighs) Attempts are made to take the cringe out of it. Those attempts fail. But it was, I, I cannot impress upon you how this was considered the height of comedy in 1976. How people reference this scene as just, it, it seemed like it was cathartic in a weird way, that it seemed a, a kind of release valve. Well, what's your guys' take? I think the, the one thing that bothered me is about that scene is that, and they did this with the N-word too, where they kind of, gave permission for the n-word to be said for blackface to be done as long as the way that black folks interacted with it was okay so richard Pryor puts the blackface on and then the shoe polish guy comes in and says you got to have more rhythm so it's like oh they're okay with what this guy's trying to do but just like when uh when the guy says the n-word to richard Pryor, he's then knocked out he's punished for it and then later on when someone says the n-word uh richard Pryor has this has this monologue where he gets Mm -hmm. to like go after the guy for saying the n-word so it's like yeah isn't it crazy that these guys are saying the n-word which is one of the that's one of my least favorite ways of justifying the n-word or a blackface (laughs) 
in a in a movie. And I felt like in this one, this was probably the basis form of blackface, where it's just like y'all are just doing this for fun. This isn't you're not saying anything about blackface. Mm-hmm. You're just you're just having a good time here, which is I think they. I, I, I could have done without it, but it's, you know, it didn't, it, it, I, I chalked it up as par for the 70s chorus, right? Like, this sure. is a, like I knew what I was watching when I turned it on. I saw it in the preview, like you said. So it was yeah, like I knew yeah. what I was watching when I turned it on. Come on, man. Get some jive going. Be cool. Shake it, but don't break it. Hey, man. How do I look? You look sharp, mister. I feel sharp. You hear? I feel like it's 10 around midnight. You dig? Honestly, get down. Get down. Feeling good. I mean, I, I wouldn't watch this and I, and I wonder if there's like, just was like a naivete in that time about how, how much improvement there had been in, in race relations. I mean, like I do think I that in see the 21st that. century, I do think like we have gone backwards. I mean, demonstrably, right? We have gone backwards in a lot of, a lot of ways. And in the seventies, I think regardless of where we were, there was a lot of evidence that that society was was improving right becoming more there's more dialogue more harmony more more acknowledgement of past sins and yeah so i mean it was it was naive it was naive to think that like like you know though this is all you know now now this is all resolved and we can we can joke about it um but uh yeah so i think both those things are true i think it's naivete but i also think that 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 was still a time of of progress and we are now in a time of uh regress what's the word i'm looking for uh backsliding yeah. devolution uh. yeah i'd agree with that if it, but to, to ron's point this movie lays so much track tries to hedge its bets so much to as a as a screen owner would probably say even then give the power to the black characters right um so uh, george wilder is a figure of fun because he's not hip so that's why it's funny yeah um, I, I think that is is people would say, oh, you're, you're, you're taking this out of context. No. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This is the context. I mean, this is the context where if we were taking it out of context, they would just do it and have the courage of their terrible convictions, but they are so careful to to try to create this elaborate scenario whereby it's Richard Pryor who has the idea to do it, and he then gets to lecture Gene Wilder about how to do it. Yes. And then... The shoeshine guy comes in, and he also buys into it, just as you said, Ron. Like, that is a lot of nervousness around this scene. That's a lot of sweatiness around this scene that I think just makes it stand out, just makes it kind of uh, uh, vibrate. And, you know, it's the 1976 of it all, but, um, you know... Still right. oof, cringe. I mean, like, if you have... Is I, I, you, you, right, so if you have Richard Pryor say, I have an idea, they go into the bathroom, and then we cut to Gene Wilder walking out, not trying to... Not speaking, not not trying to dance or whatever, just, just like walking with Richard Pryor past the cops, and it's, you know, the whole thing is now 30 seconds of screen time instead of 10 minutes. Uh, I mean, is that better? It like, depends. I, really so not. it depends, <laughs> because I feel like... So I feel like... And I don't want this to become a whole uh, history of blackface, but I will say this. There's two instances of blackface that I always looked at and say, I understand what you were doing there. And they're in 30 Mm -hmm. Rock and they're in uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And both of those instances, they're they're absolutely lampooning the people who think that there's a right way to do blackface, which is to me, I'm like, okay, that's funny. I get, I understand what you're, you're saying. You guys are saying that there is no right way to do it. Look at these idiots trying to do it. But you're right, Chris. I think if there is a world in which they're doing 
this scene. If he says, if Richard Pryor says, I have an idea, he comes out, even if he is bopping and snapping, but he comes out, walks by, and he looks at Richard, and, and Richard says, I told you that would work. At least it goes by quickly. I'm still probably a little bit offended, but not as much as like dragging it out, putting it on yeah. his face, practicing how to be black, like literally shucking and jiving. I'm just like... <laughs> You know, Mr. Uh, I forgot the screenwriter's name, but I mean, you, there there are a lot of different ways you could sneak Gene Wilder onto the train. Like he doesn't exactly. You don't know, <laughs> need to do blackface that. at all. Like you can put him in a luggage cart or something. Yeah, slide it right on in there. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, they do make it onto the train, but there's no sign of Hilly or Devereaux. Uh, Grover's goes off to steal a porter's uniform. There's something in that too, because porters are black, and so obviously he. Well, he says. I mean, there, he makes a point of like you're gonna have to buy the porter's uniform. Like he, yeah. he, he says, pay the man again. Yep. Which again, maybe that's part of that that nervousness, that sweatiness that you were talking about. Like we're not stealing. We're <laughs> we're gonna. <laughs> yep. Yep. Buy uh, George these goes into uh, Hilly's compartment, creepy, and uh, t- plays just does that ka-chunk, plays the tape recorder, whatever it is, and uh, it that has the pa- magical effect to summon Hilly. <laughs> and, then, and then gets him knocked out. Um, so it turns out Devereaux's got the Rembrandt letters, uh, and he has this yes. breakfast with George and Hilly, and, he's, and again, this is why you could have had a lot of people do this scene, but he's playing sinister confidence. He, and he tells them, I'm just going to kill you both, um, and there's no... Mustache twirling here. There is love just quarrel. Menace. She shoot you, and she's going to shoot him. Uh, all that remains is to clear up a couple of points, meaning the two of you. So I've arranged a new scenario wherein you are responsible for the murder of the professor. Why would I kill the professor? But to get the Rembrandt letters that he found ah. out, and you had to shoot him because he tried to blackmail you. Which brings us more or less up to date. Except that in about 45 minutes from now, the professor's trusty secretary is going to quarrel with her partner lover and shoot him. And he dies. But not before shooting her. Ah, enough of this talk of plots and scenarios. Uh, Join me in a cup of coffee, would you? Porter comes in with coffee. He spills it. Uh, it the, the porter, of course, is uh, uh, Richard Pryor, is Grover. Well, hang on. I mean, the, there's a different waiter first, and he yeah. goes away, and then Richard Pryor returns. So it's that's actually supposed to be Patrick McGowan can't tell one black man from another black man, or is it? That's the implicit, that's the implicit bit here, yeah. Okay. Like, I didn't know if it was just like no one pays attention to servants or if it was like more explicitly racial, like he cannot. Well, we'll find out discern. because at this point, uh, after he's spilled upon uh, and as you know, and has expressed some impatience with how much character uh, Richard Pryor's character has, after he's expressed some impatience and gets spilled on, Patty McGee proceeds to not say, not mutter, but uh, declaim, invoke the, D- the N word. Like, there is drama. And bite to it. There is an intake of breath before it comes out of his mouth. <laughs> it is, it is a thing. It is a whole thing. It is meant to make us hate him, and it works. But it's it's such a. Weird I, I mean, use it's weird, but let's man's, of this man's gifts. Okay, but let's let's talk about something that happens before that. Before he loses his temper and he reveals his his true nature by using that horrible word prior is doing his bid and 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 he under, i mean other than just to make the audience laugh i don't exactly understand what he is trying to accomplish in this moment with his his ruse playing the the waiter and he says to 
like Inri Hilly is like, uh, is that your woman? And uh, it's like, oh, stand Stuart. up. Let me get a look at you. That's your lady, man? <laughs> She's something else. Stuart. Stand up, mama. Let me get a look at you. Stuart. Mm, mm, mm. Have mercy. Stuart, you may go. Thank you very much. That would be a shockingly offensive thing to say, I assume, in 1976 as now. And this is where, like, McGowan or anybody at that table, you know, never mind Hilly, would be well within their rights to say, who the hell do you think you are? You can't talk to someone that way. And in that moment, McGowan is still going like, okay, very good. Thank you. That will do. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Please, yep. please go away. And yep. after he's just, just made this leering comment about the, the woman at the table, what's he trying to do? What is, what is Grover's objective? He, in that? He is that's trying it. to get under Devereaux's skin. That, that's what it's okay. there for. Okay. He's, he's I didn't know that either. He's explicitly Wait. trying to get a rise out of him, make this guy uh, fall, you know, kind of collapse. Uh, he's also trying to be funny. That's that's another thing. But I think he's he's really trying to uh, get Devereaux in a position with his back against the wall so that he will make a mistake. That's my theory. Who knows? Yeah. I'll go with that. I was thinking a lot about how... A decade, eight years later, in in Beverly Hills Cop, right? All the scenes where where Eddie Murphy is is kind of sticking and improving his way past a maitre d or past a doorman, and sometimes he's playing a very effeminate man or or whatever, and you know, and you watch those scenes now, and like, ugh. you know, and I mean, on the on the one hand, he's he is just a very funny comedian, and whenever he's going to do a shtick, whenever he's going to do a bit like that, yeah, it's it's funny, but. Because is it just funny that he's pretending to be gay? Is gayness in itself supposed to be the like the butt of the joke here? And the butt of the joke. There was a time. Yeah, there was certainly a time when there was a thing. You know, and and, and I mean, particularly Eddie Murphy, like in his stand-up, there was a whole bit. You know, around the time of Beverly Hills Cop, that just wouldn't fly now. Sure. Uh, so George and Grover hold Patty McGee at gunpoint. They go to get the Rembrandt letters. They go into his safe, uh, back in the storage car, whatever the hell it is. And there's a St. Mary statue in his safe. That, that seems <laughs> yes. an odd detail. Then there's some gunplay involving George and Grover. George and Grover jump from the train, effectively abandoning Hilly and the Rembrandt letters. I didn't quite that. I didn't make that leap. Couldn't figure out why they were doing that. I think they, they just went too far with the him getting off the train bit because that's the only way I can understand it is, oh, no, man, this guy's getting off the train again. And I imagine if you're watching this in a theater or something mm-hmm. in a 1970s audience, you're like, oh, he's off the train again, guys. Which right. me watching this completely didn't make sense. It felt like they written to a point and says, no matter what, he's getting off this train three times, no matter what. And they wrote to those points and they never asked why. Or why would you keep getting back on? Or why did this woman that you're suddenly in love with? What it was? It was very. I don't think they did enough work to interrogate. Like, why are we getting back on and off the train? It didn't make any sense to me. I, right. I mean, after after they they shoot at each other from a very very short distance away inside a train <laughs> car, which is a which is a narrow space. So yeah. <laughs> You had 12 chances. You missed it. Well, I mean, this is the thing. The plot demands that George get some help now, get some mm-hmm. actual federal helps. And the only way he can do that is by getting off the train. So, he gets Oh, man. And who, who, is the, who is the Fed who uh, reveals himself? He's like, oh, we, we've been trying to pick you up since, not Poughkeepsie or whatever, whatever the hell it is. When, yep. when, uh, but that, uh, the, the guy, the, the, you crazy bastard guy. And then when he gets Fred Willard on the phone to tell him about the runaway train, who is that guy? 
Yeah, it's it's the chief. His his his. Uh, I don't know the actor, but like the character's name is Chief. He turns out to be like the head of the local feds, I guess. But it turns yeah. out that's not a national manhunt for George. That was just a version to protect him. I'm yep. gonna need the movie to show its work there. I don't quite. Follow yeah, it. no, and I mean this is this assumes just like incredible benevolence on the part of the FBI. <laughs> Or whatever, whatever federal law enforcement agency he's he's representing. Like, oh, we were we were just so worried that this this uh, this idiot who stumbled into our long running investigation was going to get hurt that we we had to risk the whole thing to try to just just get him off the train. And there's so much information that seems to have passed from Ned Beatty to this chief without a cell phone. Like this guy just kind of knows that uh, George didn't kill uh, Bob Sweet. Yep. He knows it. It'd be impossible it. for him to know that. Possible of that. Uh, no, arrested. just uh, but I mean, Ned Beatty did all the right things as he's dying. So they go uh, here, take my gun, yep. <laughs> take my gun. <laughs> well, uh, they will, they will take take my gun to its illogical extreme. Where what happens is they're arrested by a passing sheriff. Uh, George tells the chief of this local bureau uh, of Patty McGee's plan, and then the guy's like, "Sure, come with us. Here's a gun. Come with us as we." Take this guy down. Yep. Here's that bullets. Here's yeah. bullets. Here's Load the bullets. gun. <laughs> Load the gun by yourself. And, and come impatient. behind me. I'm impatient because you're still talking. You're still having this touching moment of goodbye with Grover when we need to be going to arrest this guy. And if you don't come with us, we can't do that. What? what? Exactly. I didn't follow. Yes. Uh, speaking of, uh, of interracial buddy movies that have very, very cringy scenes uh, in, involving the the use of the N-word. All the work they're doing to keep Gene Wilder involved in the climax here reminded me of the end of Die Hard with a Vengeance, which is a, a movie where Samuel Jackson stumbles in the movie by like rescuing Bruce Willis, and it makes sense for them to stay together for the like the rest of that day while shit's happening, but then the climax of the movie occurs sometime later, and it's like, why is Samuel Jackson, the civilian, still here? Like, why did you take this this guy who just, you know, like, fell into this circ- situation by ha- happenstance, and like put him in danger again by uh just just bringing him here so that he can confront Jeremy Irons this this terrorist it was it was the same aka Alan Rickman's uh, brother yep on screen brother Simon Gruber (laughs) he had a brother Ronald he did of the the Hamburg Grubers anyway uh Devereaux has burnt the Rembrandt letters. I didn't think the the, the, show, the, the movie would go through with that, but yep. Yes. Burnt uh, the only copy of the, the great Elvis Costello uh, Brodsky Quartet uh, oh collaboration, the, the Rembrandt letters. See, I should have said that the first time. But. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we all agree it would have worked better. Uh, he tells his goons to disconnect the emergency brakes because the plan now is, because there's so many people know, I think, they're going to just get out of the stop before Chicago and then let the train barrel into, is it Union Station Chicago? What is Union in Chicago? Whatever the ah, Chicago station is. Um, and do and, and kill many, 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 many people um, because that's <laughs> yes. how he covers his tracks. That's how it he was Adrian Veet's master plan to uh, just drop a train in the city <laughs> yeah. of Chicago. Speaking of Jeremy Irons. Yep. Now let's, 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 let's get into this and let's talk about this budget now because mm-hmm. in these scenes we have a helicopter gunfight. Two. Three. We have a yeah. speeding train going back and forth, cut shot to shot. We have a crowd of people running off the train. You have the train running into the building. Like, and I, I'm sitting there. I, I was wondering how many shots that took. It 
you can't get that's that. But do you have to get it in one, or is it more than one? Or was well, that a real building? The they actually got these trains to run along a track, and Gene Wilder and all these characters to interact with it off the track. Which means if you miss the shot, that is a half a day to bring the train back yeah, to try to yeah. get it again. This is like the, that was impressive to me. Like that, yes. that much. That there was some money. Uh, Spent. But it's, I mean, it's in the appropriate place. It's in the climax of the yeah. the film. Like, for example, um, in The Fugitive, uh, they, they do like a big train derailment. And that was a whole big thing at the time. Like, I remember watching the featurettes on that. And like, they did knock a real train off a track. For, they didn't use miniatures or anything. And I mean, that's a, that's the first act of the movie. That's basically the inciting incident of Richard Kimball's escape him him becoming the titular fugitive and the climax of the film is not as physically elaborate as that and i and i mean i like that sometimes just for variation when the biggest stunt in the movie doesn't come right at the end but given that this is really the only (laughs) like real elaborate kind of stunts in this film it's and it's it's pretty elaborate i mean the feds have gotten to the train a stop earlier uh and told everybody to get off the train uh this is when ron the fat guy passes with food because of course he would, right? Now he's getting off the train. Everybody's getting off the train, so now he can go raid the uh, kitchen and take all the fattening foods. Everything on that, everything he's carrying is like a Twinkie or a cupcake or something like that because he's been eating nothing but cottage cheese and tab this whole time. So Did one more not fat joke. like. Did not like. <laughs> um, so in this, in these scenes that follow, Devereaux is convinced um, he can outgun the cops with one machine gun or whatever the hell it is, uh, assault rifle. I don't know what the hell it is. Uh, he thinks he can outgun and get away from 20, 50 cops. Uh, He makes the engineer uh, start the train. He keeps Ray Walston from getting back on the train for no reason I could discern. Just to be a jerk. Just to be a jerk. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. George and Grover board the train. He shoots off. him. He doesn't just keep him from. He shoots him, right? Like Walston no, no, is, is he's already shot. But he stops on his hands. Oh, yeah. that's right. That's right. Yeah, steps on his fingers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, George and Grover off. Uh, Devereaux's last remaining henchman. Uh, Devereaux is shooting at choppers. He, uh, he that's that's yeah. his that's his gig. He's just shooting at choppers, and and uh, they shoot at him, and uh, he does get hit, and he does get decapitated in a kind of remarkable a decapitation that happens all in the editing that happens it's, it's yeah it's off screen but it's it, like you seems like a pretty gruesome way to go yep agree. like isn't he wounded and hanging out the side of the train as another train is coming down the track in the opposite direction yep the, the adjacent track in the opposite direction and now that the whole Devereaux plot is done with this movie becomes a different kind of movie. It becomes a runaway Unstoppable, train. starring yeah, Denzel Washington it, it and Chris It becomes unstoppable, exactly. <laughs> so the feds try to warn Amrode, and we get a remarkable amount of business about the uh, hierarchy of this Amrode office in Chicago when Fred Willard is the comptroller who refuses to believe them until he finally does. It's a runaway train, then he goes to, goes to find If the engineer's off the train, boss. who's driving the train? Tell me that. Who's driving the train? It is so weird to see, like, it is It is equally weird to see Fred Willard playing a just a smug prick mm-hmm. in, in a movie like this. It, it is as strange as it was when we were watching those those McGowan Columbo episodes, and you see Leslie Nielsen just playing a tough guy. Yeah. yeah Not yeah. trying to be funny, but actually presented as, as just a thug. <laughs> uh, he, he goes, Fred Willard goes to try to find him in a cafeteria, a cafe, and then he shakes, he manhandles the cashier lady because she's 
grabs her by the like the blouse and is like it was what? so unnecessary it was so completely unnecessary <laughs> what are you doing what's what's going on here she's you know she's mildly annoyed by by yeah. this assault yes she's yes, i've i've just been assaulted uh, uh it must be tuesday uh so it's a runaway train there's some business with the emergency brake it goes back and forth and then we get frankly the airplane ending right this yep. is this is this is the train crashing into the station and it really seems like there's some narrow escapes right it really seems and this could all be forced perspective it could be i don't know what it is but it really seems like this thing is barreling through other people who are just getting away and they're not like fakey fakey obviously fit stuntmen they are men women uh big people small people it's really an impressive crash scene yeah the the let me tell you <laughs> you said it glenn <laughs> The body count is all on the screen. God bless the sacrifice of uh, all all those day players who decided to shuffle off this mortal coil on Mm -hmm. film. I just remember thinking, like again, just uh, that there that this wasn't a model. Right. That's not a model train. And I, I had to wa- I had to like really watch closely. I'm like, no, that's not a model. And because we'd obviously know and it wasn't. I mean, because what they'd have to do to put people in there would be way more than they have the capacity to do seamlessly. This is the era of the airport films, right? Sure. I mean, I yep. feel I haven't seen all those, but I think but I mean, I've seen the clip of the jumbo passenger liner just like crashing into the, the terminal and mm-hmm. I feel like that's expected Maybe, but it's still impressive anyway. But then the then we get the anticlimax immediately. We get uh, Richard Pryor driving away in the car that happens to be in the in this train station, um, yeah. and we get her saying, "Next time I'm going to take the bus." This is a buddy comedy thriller. That is the first joke joke in this fucking movie. Like that is, we've waited an hour and fifty three minutes, and that's the that's an actual joke. It's not a good one. It's a really sweaty one. It's really tired. And then she says, "I want you to take me to a park." This is the callback that you were mentioning, Chris. Mm-hmm. Don't take me to a park because I want you to teach me more about uh, begonias or whatever the hell begonias gardening. <laughs> so this is what these people who have been involved in multiple homicides, who are witnesses to an interstate yep. crime. Mm-hmm. What they're going to do is they're going to go to a park in Chicago and lie in the grass. Ah, yeah, correct. <laughs> as Chris stated, like being on a train makes you receptive, as he I, said. It's, it's the as Chris said, it's Chris the said motion. that. Excuse me, I, I was I was just uh, citing uh, sexual dynamo Ned Beatty, <laughs> a man whose pencil never needs sharpening. Oh God! Oh my God! Right. End <laughs> So here is the moment in the podcast where we rate the movie we have just sat through on a scale of one to six. Uh, who wants to start? Who wants to start? All right, I'm new, so yes, I'll, I'll yes, start. Please. Guest, guest yeah. goes first. Uh, okay, I mean, I feel like with most movies that I rate, I always try to take into account multiple factors. When was it made? Context, all that stuff. Uh, but honestly, there was... I w- there were parts of this movie that I felt like I was enjoying, and then they would be punctuated by parts that I profoundly did not enjoy. Right. And there's just a lot of the inward, <laughs> inward to blackface to inward scenes were enough to be like, <laughs> all right, that's, a, that's enough. Fair. So I, I think out of six, I got to give it, 
are, are do can we do mid ranges? Are we yeah, allowed sure. to do point? Okay, yeah. <laughs> There's no. So I, I think I would give it a one point five. Honestly, wow. it, like I, I would not watch this again. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. No, um, I wouldn't. Yes, yeah, so one point five. Yeah. That's All right, go ahead, Chris. I'm going to give it a two point five. I will consider the historical significance of of having launched uh, the prior Wilder Inc. And I actually haven't seen any of those. That's fair. Either. <laughs> but uh, uh, Arthur Hiller did direct another of the one of them. Arthur Hiller directed 1989 See No Evil, Hear No Evil, starring these these same two men, which I have not seen. I do like Jill Clayburgh. Patty McGee's a, a good villain. I'm glad he's getting work. 2.5. I think uh, Ron nailed it. 1.5 is frankly generous. And I'm giving it to... <laughs> To that movie because of because of Patrick McGowan, like he is. I look, this is a Patrick McGowan podcast, right? And so obviously he is the best part of this film. He is uh, implacable, implacably evil, but believably so. He is uh, he is icy. Uh, but man, the film around it, and I am mystified that like eight year old me, you know, ate this thing up with a spoon because this is what we were served in nineteen in the late. When I well, saw it, it was on television, so it was like late 70s, early 80s. And so there is no joke density here. It's can't You can't call this a buddy comedy because Richard Pryor's in it for like, what, an hour? And then... And it, so Richard Pryor is in it for 50 minutes. And you can't call it a, a, a comedy because there's not enough joke jokes. There's little bits, but that there's like one... There's, yeah. Like you could count the number of... Like the number of comedic bits probably take up, what, 15 minutes of this whole thing? And you can't call it a thriller yeah. because, I mean, it's just... It's the pacing of this thing is off, and it just doesn't. It just doesn't uh, send. So one point five. And yet, you ate this up with a spoon, and audiences ate this up with a spoon. Glenn, mm-hmm. this was the fifth highest-grossing film of 1976, big hit. Not as big as Rocky, the year's number one movie. It was behind uh, the Dino De Laurentiis remake of King Kong with Jeff Bridges Oof. and Jessica Lange. It was behind the remake of A Star is Born with Barbara Streisand and uh, Chris Christopherson. But here are uh, the 1976 films, many of which I think we can say have lived on in the hearts and minds of cinephiles in a way that Silver Streak has not. Nevertheless, that did not make as much money in their year of release as Silver Streak did. It beat out All the President's Men, The Omen, The Bad News Bears, Marathon Man, Carrie, Taxi Driver, Network, Logan's Run, okay. The Enforcer, which was the, the third Dirty Harry movie, uh, the Richard Lester joint Robin and Marion. Glenn, in addition to starring Sean Connery as Robin Hood, this movie has Audrey Hepburn as Marion, Robert Shaw as the Sheriff of Nottingham, Richard Harris as Richard the Lionheart, Nicole Williamson from Excalibur as, as Little John, oh. Denholm Elliott, Ian Holm. How the hell have I never seen this film? Yeah, right. Right. I, 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 I remember it not getting good reviews, but I mean, I don't remember. I was eight, but like, uh, no, wait, what, 76? Yeah. 76. So, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't think that film has a good reputation. Um, but I mean, Taxi Driver, Marathon Man, these are, these are timeless. These are, these are things that should have. Network, Carrie, uh, right? Ronald, are any of these films that, uh, that mean anything to you or that they have any? You know, I, Especially as you were as you were saying the names, I realized some of these are, are were were kind of cult classics though. So 
they probably didn't find their audience until after they had long left theaters. Whereas, yeah. you know, Silver Streak promised promised in the trailer comedy and then a lot of action. So in terms of people going to see it, they would go see that in the theaters, but uh, it might be a specific crowd that's going to see Carrie or all the president, especially like all the president's men. Yeah, like, yeah. Come on, who's going to see that in the theater? But I mean, this movie made 10 times its budget, which is yep. incredible for that time. Uh, but you, you know what I will say? If we take this movie and we classify it, because think about it, Scatman Carruthers is in it, who's like, mm -hmm. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, he's like a famous like jazz artist or something of that of that time. Sure. Yep. So he's that generation's rapper. So like, mm -hmm. think about all the movies that the blockbusters that come out now that have like an all star cast and then like two or three rappers thrown in there or pop stars, if you That's will that actually do really well because they're crowd pleasers or whatever. I, none are none are coming to mind, but you know what type of movie I'm describing. Sure, sure, so sure. it's not surprising. It's a that good place for us to an announce our new miniseries examining the many collaborations of Steven Seagal and DMX. The, okay. You know what I'm talking about then. Yes. <laughs> you know a degree DMX. <laughs> that was uh, that was Glenn's idea, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Yet another DMX joint. <laughs> Rest in peace. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Ronald, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for doing this. I, this was a much better conversation with, your, with you being here just because uh, I, this, there's so much in this movie that I could not grab. <laughs> <laughs> Were you not here? Because uh, yep. I, I, this, this movie is, um, you know, this is, this is a Patrick McGowan podcast, and yet <laughs> sometimes you run up against something that is just like, oof, oof, oof. We really are scraping the, the barrel of uh, where a Patrick McGowan podcast can, can go. Well, let me tell you guys both. I, I really respect both of you. I really enjoy talking to both of you. And if watching Silver Streak is an excuse to do that, then oh, it was well worth it as far as I'm concerned. So thanks uh, for having me. God bless you, my friend. We will have you back when we're not talking about anything remotely like this. That's uh, fine. Let's talk about Tenet. Let's talk about <laughs> I have a word for you. Glenn has a gesture. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. It's funny every time, and I've never even seen Glenn do it. It's still funny to me just knowing that that's what happens. <laughs> we're actually going to record some room tone, and we're going to make it louder than all of our voices and uh, play. Yes, but for, especially for the tenant episode. Yes, and, and mutter under our breath while. <laughs> tenant rules. It rules. Drools, tenant drools. Oh, how many times have you seen it, Glenn? Watch it again. Uh, just the once. Yeah, go like six more times, man. It, it clicks in. <laughs> turn, uh, turn the caption on. <laughs> yeah, you can't watch a Christopher Nolan movie once. Uh, yeah, amateur move. That'll always be the dream. Ronald, what would you what would you like to plug, sir? Tell the people about all of your your many wonderful projects. Uh, so currently you can catch me on Pushkin's Solvable and of course on Leaving the Theater uh, where, you know, I review movies as I'm leaving the theater, which I invite both of you guys to come on uh, whenever you guys hit the theaters again. Let me know. We can go yeah. see something, whatever it is. I know we're supposed to hit the Alamo Draft House, Chris. So let me know what you want to see. We can do that very oh soon. God. And then, of course, on Peacock, if you guys have Peacock, I just did a show called True Story with Ed Helms and Randall Park, in which I tell oh. a story about how. I went to prom as a high school senior. Uh, it is on episode three of Peacock, wherever you guys subscribe. So go ahead and subscribe. Get your office binge in. Then watch True Story with Ed Helms and Randall Park. Watch True Story. And, and also, if you haven't watched your, your Magoo and Columbos yet, you can also find those on Peacock. There you go. Good reasons to, <laughs> <Synergy>. <laughs> to get Peacock. <laughs>
I got the invitation to Moonfall the other day. You know, who better than Roland Emmerich? I got the same invitation, and I'm watching the numbers. If the numbers come down with the alacrity and verb that they seem to be coming down, maybe, but right, not right now, man. <sighs> It'll be. I'll be ready when you guys are ready. Until the transmission rates decline, not even a, a great Adele title song can get us into the theater to see Moonfall. Okay. I'll go see Moonfall with you, Chris. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Spectacular. Thank you once again, Ronald. Thanks for having me. Thank you once again, listeners. Be seeing you. Be seeing you. See, I'm a train and a comet. Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemek. I wrote our silly theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark on vocals and keyboards and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion. Find out more about Casey at CaseyAaronClark.com and or VitalVoiceTraining.com. You can find Jonathan's band Daybringer on Bandcamp. Write the Citizens Advice Bureau at adegreeabsolute at gmail.com. We love to get your emails. Follow us on Instagram at a degree absolute. Follow us on Twitter at not a number pod. And of course, please leave a five-star review on Apple, Stitcher, whatever podcatcher you use to hear this, along with your wildest prisoner take, and we will read that prisoner take on a future episode. But by all means, take or no take, leave that five-star review. It really, really helps. And finally, because my dear friend Glenn, I know, has really missed his cosplay during the pandemic, I'm thrilled to be able to tell you all that he will be making an appearance this August at C2E2. I mean, I know he's been to San Diego Comic Con, I think, a few times, but he was just saying how, like, right before we started taping, that San Diego got nothing on the Midwest. And I have known Glenn a long time, and I have to say that not just his enthusiasm discussing this, but but his idiomatic mode of expression was frankly shocking. Three words, hug and munch. It's hug and munch all the way to Chicago. It's no degree partial. It's a degree absolute. Uh, check, check. Oh, is that better? Because I was using the wrong mic. I, it sounds good to me. Okay, cool. Ronald, is that a sure SM7B? It is. <laughs> oh, yes. It is. Jinx. Sorry. I think we're just going to cancel each other out with our professional micity mics. Which of the three of us is actually employed by NPR? Doesn't matter. Yep. Not important. Yep. yep. <laughs> Sorry. Didn't mean to derail that, that fun, collegial, ebullient conversation. <laughs> ebullient. Not sure I've ever said that word out loud before. No, it's close. Not sure anyone ever ever needs to. Oh, how uh, would how would you pronounce it, Glenn? It's, I, I'm just kidding. It's Julian. <laughs> yes, it's exactly. You got it right. <laughs> Makes me immediately think about bouillon, but I it don't know does. if that's what you're talking uh-huh. about. It does. <laughs> <laughs>
But, you know, if served well, correctly, bullion can make one ebullient. Words are currency. <laughs> and you can sometimes make soup out of them. Mm-hmm. Have y'all done Braveheart? We have. Yes. Okay. Glenn didn't want to do it. Really didn't. Because fuck that guy. He had never seen Braveheart, Ronald. Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. Ugh. That's fair. Because if you weren't on Nell Gibson, like, when... He was when he was secretly well when he was when he was openly normal. Then I guess you wouldn't have gone back through his uh, his. Catalog, if you didn't you know? want Mel Gibson back when he was famously what women want, oh, then you <laughs> didn't like it. <laughs> That's a one. 